This is Laura Anderson, president of Veterinary Career Services, a recruiting firm for veterinarians, veterinary specialists, and management professionals. Please join me for our podcast series, Is Veterinary Medicine Ready for a Chief Culture Officer? The top priority today for veterinarians who are seeking a new position is hospital culture. So what exactly does that mean? How do we find out the true culture of a veterinary hospital? I am interviewing chief culture officers in various industries to get a better understanding of workplace culture, how it can be changed, and how to research the culture of a veterinary hospital if you are looking for a new position. We hope you enjoy this series. Thank you for joining us. Today I am speaking with Joey Rick, who is the Chief Cultural Officer at PartnerMD. This is a concierge primary care organization in Richmond, Virginia. Joey's expertise lies in organizational development, employee engagement, developing leaders, and executive coaching, and other areas related to corporate culture. I am so excited to learn more about what you do, Joey. As you know, I work with veterinary hospitals and specialty hospitals. And today, what I hear most from veterinarians that are looking for a new position is that they want a hospital that has a great culture. And from what I have seen, not many veterinary hospitals have designated individuals who are responsible for the hospital culture. Uh, So I'm hoping that this will shed some light into what this role looks like and how it benefits the the organization as a whole and everyone associated with it. So let's get started. I'm delighted to be here, Laura. Thank you. Thank you, Joey. So so tell me, are you the first chief culture officer for your organization? I am. And most organizations have never had a chief culture officer before. It's a fairly new title in the last maybe decade or so. Um, It's not new science. It's not new sociology. Um, but it seldom is actually elevated to the level of somebody in the executive suite. And what are your primary responsibilities? So in the organization that I'm in now, I am responsible not only for culture, but human resources also reports up through me. Different organizations mm-hmm. do culture in different ways. Sometimes someone is designated as the person, sort of the ombudsman for culture, More often, it just sort of falls in someone's wheelhouse, but it's not part of a title. My primary responsibility um, in this job and in the others that I've held is to help people do what it is they're going to do, but do it better, and to make sure that what people are trying to accomplish is aligned with culture, and if it's not aligned with culture, to figure out ways to change the culture in a healthy and reasonable pace so that the organization can digest change and function in a way that maximizes human performance. Uh And you've been in this role for almost two years, is that correct? That's correct. I've been at PartnerMD for almost two years. And how is it going so far? I think it's going well. It's an amazing organization and and it has a very strong culture. Culture isn't something that we think of in terms of good or bad. Culture is value neutral. Um, But culture is something that can be weaker or stronger, so slightly more fungible in an organization or more entrenched. The culture here at PartnerMD is very entrenched, but it's a a culture that that is well aligned with what the 
vision for the organization is um, and is largely supported by the practices and processes that we have in place. Um, It's an organization that has benefited from a little bit more employee engagement and, as many organizations, has benefited from from a more overt articulation of culture um, and conversation about culture because it's in the articulation and the conversation that people actually understand how culture is playing a role in what they are doing or what they are not able to do. Okay. To ask more about that, what are the five pillars of organizational culture? Well, let me say before we start with the five pillars, because I think it would be a little bit more um, clear to listeners if I jumped first to the question of what's the difference between culture and climate. Um, And I say that because in 2019, culture as a term is getting bandied about more regularly, which is great, um, but it's often misunderstood. Um, There are a lot of people who think that an organization with a good culture is an organization where it's a happy place to work. And the truth of the matter is that would more describe climate than culture. So let me give you an example. um, And I'll give you an example that has nothing to do with an organization, but has to do with a country. Um, And I say that because the the notions of climate and culture make sense to us when we're talking about geography and when we're talking about national identity. So let's hop to Spain for a second. If you were to go to the south of Spain in July and visit the Mediterranean there, it would be obvious to you that it was hot. You'd get off the plane and it would be hot. All the Spaniards would be hot. Visitors would be hot. It would be clear in a moment that that was the climate of the place. But while you were in Spain, you would also notice that people were leaving work in the middle of the day to have a long lunch and take siesta, and then they would go back for a couple of hours and come home and have dinner far later at night than we tend to in the States, and with larger family gatherings than we tend to in the States, and often outdoors. And that, though it was originally probably dictated by climate, doesn't have anything to do with climate now because Spain has air conditioning just like the rest of the world does. So what that has become is a cultural phenomenon. Spain has become a place and identifies itself as a place where pace and work-life balance and the notion of not being available in any corporate sense for a full and consecutive 12 or 14 hours a day the notion of spending more time with family and slowing down the hours that you work and spreading them out and intermingling them with other things, that's part of the culture of Spain. And you wouldn't necessarily know that the minute you got off an airplane. So climate, likewise, in an organization is something that you can feel in a moment and that's changeable in a moment. So um, if I put a margarita machine in every break room of every company in the United States, it would possibly be a happier day possibly also a sloppier day, but that could change the next day if instead I ask people to be eating, you know, liver and onions for breakfast, right? So um, climate is really changeable. Culture is something that is much more deeply entrenched and is something that the people who live and work in a country or an organization cease to see. It is so much the way we do things around here that it becomes almost invisible, but it's also very, very difficult to change. So if you think about the pillars, as you asked about them, um, the five sort of pillars that could support culture, we could argue them academically, but I would say vision and mission and people and structure and processes are the things that need to be aligned with culture or that are going to cause tension in the organization if they are misaligned. How is culture communicated 
to employees? A great question. Um, culture is usually communicated non-verbally. Um, the artifacts of culture are frequently communicated verbally, though. So let me give you two stories. Um, the first is um, in the early 90s, I was working on the bank merger of Manufacturers Hanover Trust and Chemical Bank, both in New York. And we were merging the organizations because one had bought the other. Um, and part of my responsibility was to help them figure out whether the cultural alignment between the two organizations was actually there. And if it wasn't there, what the new culture of the sort of third um, evolving organization was going to be. Um, and one of the banks had um, had a dress code where tellers and employees could wear anything they wanted to to work. And folks would show up in, you know, leather skirts and high heels and whatever occurred to them. Um, and the other one was very sort of what you think of as banker, um, very buttoned down, three-piece suits. Um, and despite the fact that we had created processes that were completely aligned, that we had created policies that were aligned, that we created technology that was aligned, we recognized that these two groups of people would literally look at each other and be alarmed. Um, and, so, and so it became a question of, well, how do we figure out what underlies, um, what are the underlying values and principles that each are relying on, right, to, to justify, if you will, um, the artifact of the dress code? Um, what is it that the bankers feel is important about wearing a three-piece suit versus the other bankers feeling is important about feeling accessible to their clientele? And how can we kind of deconstruct the artifact of dress code and figure out how the value systems underlying those dress codes might have some overlap? So organizational value plays a huge role in what cultural artifacts will become and the strength of culture can make or break things that would otherwise seem as if they were working well together, like technology and process and, and structure. The second story is an interesting one, um, because in the first story, while, while the artifacts of culture would have been communicated um, in a handbook, they would have been written out and people would have said, you know, you need to go home and change. You can't wear that to work. Um, the, the second story is, a, is an interesting one. It was an experiment done about culture um, with monkeys. Um, and there were five monkeys put in a room. And there was a ladder in the middle of the room. And there were a bunch of bananas hanging from the ceiling. And when the first monkey climbed the ladder to get the bananas, um, a hose of cold water was sprayed on all five of the monkeys, the one who was climbing and all the other four who were standing down. Um, and so the monkey jumped off the ladder and left the bananas alone. And when the next monkey made a go at it, all five monkeys were again sprayed with icy cold water and they left the bananas alone. And over time, all five monkeys learned that they were not going to touch those bananas, which, of course, you know, nobody had to tell them. They just figured out that the, the reinforcement for trying to go after the bananas was negative. Right. Um, so the researchers then took one of the five monkeys out of the room and brought a new monkey in. And as soon as that new monkey walked to the ladder, the four monkeys who already knew the rules let that monkey know that that was not happening. They didn't want that cold water. And they taught that monkey that it was not okay to go up the ladder to get the bananas. Over the course of the experiment, we end up with five monkeys, none of whom are in the original monkey group, right? None of whom experienced the cold water but not one of them will go up the ladder to get those bananas. So they don't know why they're not going up the ladder. They just know that going up that ladder isn't something we do here. 
We do not go after bananas. And so that's an example of culture as it more normally appears. You walk into an organization and you learn quickly by positive or negative reinforcements that your peers give you that this is either the way we do things around here or it's not. And it's neither good nor bad. We could argue that, you know, it doesn't really matter whether they should have gone after the bananas or not. The organization is going to reinforce that bananas are not happening. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's unspoken. Yes, it is almost entirely unspoken. And in a chief culture officer position, part of my role is to help people speak it so that they can better understand it, so that they can better support the things that are actually helping the organization, and that they can, over time, try to change things that might not be helping the organization. But as you can imagine, Culture isn't something that is easily changeable. Um, If we were to go to Spain tomorrow and tell everyone there that they can't take a siesta, they would sort of look at us and scratch their heads and keep taking their siesta. And if there were a small town in Spain where somebody decided to keep his or her storefront open during siesta, there wouldn't be any customers there. So quickly that proposition would fail, right? So it's uh, unless you do it um, sort of by, you know, dripping water on the rock and changing it over time or articulating it so that people can make a really volitional and conscious choice about it, it doesn't tend to change. So it seems to me if someone were to join an organization in a capacity such as yours, they would have to first define the existing culture and then through obviously through a lot of research and then define what culture they were wanting to create and, and, and then implement changes as to how to get there. Yeah, absolutely. So you can do it. You can do it slowly and over time. Um, one of the most common misconceptions is that a leader could walk in and say, so for example, a new CEO could walk in and say, well, that's just not the way we're doing it anymore. And while you could change the processes and you could change the structure, unless you change the people or their underlying values or mindset, it would be unlikely to stick or it might just take a long time to change. One of the challenges with culture is it is um, its root system is deep. Um, so let's say, for example, um, if we were to look at um, the culture of the Avengers, um, We would say that loyalty is a priority for them, that individuals working together to have each other backs is important, that power and identity important, that fighting the bad guys is important, and that keeping the world safe is important, right? And all of those seem like great things. Um, I don't actually know much about the mob, but let's say based on what we hear in the movies, they too would say that loyalty is a priority that individuals working together to have each other's back is important, that power and identity are important, that fighting the perceived bad guys is important, and that keeping their part of the world safe is important. So on the surface, based on the sort of artifacts we have of behavior, and even as a sort of surface conversation about values, it would seem like the culture of those two groups, the Avengers and the mob, were identical. But the The truth is their cultures are probably vastly different because underlying that articulation is an emotional experience that says that there's a difference between power for its own sake versus power for saving the world. And there's a difference between 
fear and power as a driver for behaviors versus altruism and humanism. And there's a difference between an organization that feels badly about collateral damage and an organization that doesn't feel badly about collateral damage. So the trick with changing culture is you've got to spend enough time really understanding it to get to that deepest, most fundamental layer of belief that's causing the behaviors. Um, and then figure out how to either change that one person at a time or to reinforce the parts of it that are heading in the direction that you want to change. Um, frequently, when leaders come in and try to change a culture, the first thing that happens is people who disagree with the change start to quit, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. If the culture needs to be changed and you're going to move in that direction, then people who aren't a fit are not actually going to help by sticking around. Um, so the bigger question is, are you creating a culture that fits with the previous culture? Um, or are you trying to change culture in ways that are really antithetical to the value system? In which case, you might have to cycle through all five monkeys um, introducing new ones who have a different capacity for bravery or a different desire for an icy bath um, before the culture will actually change. So it's a long-term proposition, and it really requires a learning organization, an organization that's able to articulate and um, effectively converse and deconstruct their cultural norms and values um, before you've got any prayer of doing it. Also depends on how big the organization is. A smaller organization can change more quickly than a larger organization. So if you're starting, you've kind of defined and you're understanding what the existing culture is and where you want to go. Who defines the core values or who defines where you're heading as far as culture? Is that a, from the CEO or is that an employee engagement uh, exercise? How does that happen? I think that it could be both. Um, so I'll tell you what doesn't work is just slapping new words on the wall of the break room and saying, this is our culture now. Um, because people will ignore those words if they don't actually resonate with the culture as they intuitively understand it and experience it. Um, but what can happen is that a leader can come in and say, you know, if, if we want our culture to morph slightly from A to B, or we want our espoused culture to be more aligned with our true culture, then what the leader can do is look at those five pillars, if you will, look at vision and mission, people and structure and processes, and say for each one, how does that support or not, how does the existing pillar support or not what I would like to create? And if it doesn't support what I would like to create, how do I shift it incrementally so that we're getting there? Um, because human beings will resist change if it happens too swiftly, um, particularly at work, um, but they will adapt to incremental change um, if they're sort of brought along with the process and if their voice is heard in the process. So the first thing to do is look at each pillar and figure out how it supports what you're trying to get to. Um, and that involves you know, really understanding it, um, sort of doing some doing some research and data gathering and focus groups or process analysis or whatever to figure out what it is, and then capitalizing on and leveraging the things that can help move it in the direction you want to move it. And then the other thing to do is to look at all of the pillars as a whole and see where there are gaps between them. So, for example, if our 
if our processes say we're going to do something, but our structure doesn't actually support it, then that's an enormous problem for people because they'll, they'll pick whichever one aligns with the culture as they understand it. Um, Chris Argerus used to say that culture will eat processed for lunch. So, um, for example, if we've got a culture that says um, we're supposed to, to um, I'll just take a stab at a veterinary example. If we've got a culture that says we are going to prioritize compassionate care but when someone brings their dog in to be euthanized, the what actually happens is that business goes on as usual and the family in that room with that pet is not given time and space to experience compassion. Mm-hmm. Then the process fails, even though the vision and we would all stand behind, right? So doing something as simple as saying there's going to be a dedicated room, it's going to be far away from noise, it's going to have blankets and music and maybe a candle in it, we're going to give people time and space, we're going to only schedule these after or before business hours, you know, whatever the process needs to be that would actually support what you're trying to accomplish is what will enable the change to actually happen. Mm -hmm. There's so much more involved than one would think. What are some of the changes that you have implemented to improve the culture at at PartnerMD? So it's interesting. um, Part of what I've tried to do, the organization when I joined it had gone through a couple of years of um, leadership strife um, prior to my arrival. And the sort of most seminal culture of the organization that had been in existence for 12 years or so prior to that um, had been shaken up a little bit. Um, And the seminal culture was a healthy one and was one that was aligned with our mission. But we're dealing with employees who were feeling suddenly as if they couldn't trust that and as if um, coming to work made them nervous during the day and as if their voices weren't heard um, just because of some other things that had been going on uh, in the leadership infrastructure. So what I tried to do was say, what is it about our culture? Um, Not the culture just that we espouse, but the culture that has actually been true for us for the last um, almost two decades that really is in support of our vision and mission and the way we want to support our patients and clients and figure out ways to reinforce those things and sort of de-enforce the things that had people um, nervous and scared or feeling like work was a, um, was a tenuous place to be. Um, so one of the things that we've, we've done a couple of things. The first thing that we did was um, anytime someone was treated really poorly um, by, uh, by a client, um, we allowed that person the opportunity to fire that client, uh, which was an enormously powerful signal to our employees that said, well, while our clients are important, um, we can't replace you. And if somebody is being um, bullying or brutalizing or inappropriate to you, um, it's not worth the money for us to keep those people as a client. You are more important. It's a very tactical way to say we're going to reinforce good behavior, not only in our clientele, but also the, the rights and emotional realities of our employees. So that was one of the first things we did. The second thing we did was started very sincere um, 
data gathering sessions with employees where they were invited to come and have lunch with members of the executive team for no purpose other than to share their their concerns or delights. Um, we were trying to reinforce that it was a culture with open communication by demonstrating open communication and by demonstrating a willingness to hear things. Um, the third thing I think that we did, um, which was a, a larger undertaking, was to um, to create um, performance-based competency models and performance appraisal systems. Um, folks were feeling as if there were some unexpected favoritism at play, which is not what we had historically been and didn't what didn't wasn't what we wanted to become. Um, and so being fair to employees by saying, you know what, we're going to create new structures around performance management and make managers accountable for them and give employees the benefit of them. And we're going to create new processes that support those structures so that we can promise that every year you're going to get feedback and that the feedback is going to incorporate things like whether you're actually walking the talk about our corporate values and our corporate culture. Um, I guess the last thing probably that we did is, is attend to culture in recruiting um, which is probably the single simplest thing an organization can do is make sure that they are recruiting for good fit, um, good fit with the healthy parts of the organization's culture and the parts of the organization's culture that they want to reinforce. And how do you make sure when you're interviewing somebody, how do you make sure it's the right fit? Yeah, so it's one of the hardest things to do. No, It's one of the hardest things to do no matter what business or industry you're in. Um, and at the end, I'd like to give some advice to um, to the new job seekers out there about what they can do to make sure they are the right fit, because they will have a better sense of it than the actual organization usually will. But if an organization can identify the personal attributes that really make someone um, make someone gel with the rest of the organization and resonate um, with the cultural priorities of the organization. Um, things like um, curiosity and positivity and grace and problem solving um, things that are, that are, that are even a little bit more, you know, we all, we all think we want employees who can um, have effective oral and written communication. And, and of course we do, um, but that's sort of cost of entry. What you really want is to know whether you can rely on somebody to um, have grace under pressure or show up um, even on days when they would rather not or handle a client complaint in the way that feels authentic to your organization. Um, so identifying what those things are and then asking, um, you know, my preference is always behavioral interview questions. You know, when was a time you had to demonstrate X, please describe it to me and then force them to answer. Um, th that's sort of the best way to do it. Um, the other thing is to have them interview with more than one person. Um, we do a lot of team interviews here. So the candidate will be in the room with three or four people. And at the end of that interview, those three or four people debrief with somebody who's making the hiring decision to say, you know, um, this, this gave us concern, but the conversation really seemed to flow. And this person seemed like they would fit in well here and also show up in the ways we want them to. Um, so those would be two strategies I would suggest. Um, technical functional skill is a little easier to see on a resume than fit. So fit really does require um, 
more discernment from the folks who are doing the interviewing. Do you ever ask your physicians who are interviewing to to work a day or to, to see patients or and clients and so you can kind of see how they, what their uh, bedside manner is? Um, we ask them to directly report it. Um, the problem is with HIPAA, we can't ask them to actually we can't test it out. But it's an interesting question. Um, I think that in organizations and industries where it's possible to have people actually participate for an hour or a day, it's enormously informative, both for the participant, the, the interviewee, and for the interviewers. Um, in the human medical space, that doesn't work because, it, you know, again, patients, um, we have HIPAA constraints um, for candidates. But but I would think if you could do that in the veterinary space, it would be an incredibly um, an incredibly wise thing to do um, because it allows you to um, to see someone actually at work. It's it's difficult for people to it, it's easy to fake the right answer to an interview question. It's much more difficult to actually fake the performance of a task um, or the experience in a group setting of of participating in um, in some you know functional exercise. Some veterinary hospitals can do that. If it were a veterinarian and they were licensed in that state, um, they could could potentially work. Um, and again, as you said, it seems like it would be incredibly insightful for both parties. Yes, I think so. And and I think again that you know it's sort of a no brainer if you were to be able to create that circumstance to be watching their technical functional skills. But to be watching the way they interacted with the front desk and with the vet tech and with the um, the patient's family um, would be perhaps more important. Right. Exactly. Because as you said, skill set is a that you come that that's a given, so to speak. Let me ask you this: If you were to walk in as a chief culture officer in a veterinary hospital, and it seemed that most of the employees espoused the core values that the organization had defined, uh, yet there was one individual who did not. And my question is, is it possible to change an individual so they accept the core values, or is it better just to maybe let that employee go? Do you know, Laura, I think it depends a little bit on the position the employee is in and on whether the value that they don't really agree with is problematic if they disagree with it. And, you know, let's let's be honest also how well they can fake it. Right. So if if somebody doesn't agree with open communication, but they do it, if they don't like it, but they're willing to participate in it, then as long as they're not participating with an eye roll or kicking and screaming so loudly that it makes it difficult for other people, then not agreeing with it doesn't super matter, right? Um, if it's something about compassion to our patients and they're, you know, they're, they're either not paying attention to the pet in the way you would want them to, or they're not interacting with the pet's family in the way you would want them to, that's a little more difficult to solve. Um, it's funny in the, in the, you know, culture is, it came out of the field of learning. Um, and so frequently in the, in the seventies um, and eighties, the folks who were answering questions about culture were people who ran the training departments in organizations. And in the late eighties, um, the head of, 
corporate development and training for Nordstrom was asked in an interview, um, how is it that you hire or how is it that you train people to be so nice? And this person's response was, wow, well, we don't train people to be nice. We hire people whose parents trained them to be nice. And I I think there's a lesson in that, right? I mean, there are some things that you can train for, and there are other things you really need to recruit for. And there are certain things that, you know, you can, you can fake politeness. Um, you can't necessarily fake compassion, right? So it, it you know, you, you've got to make a choice as a, as an employer, which things are actually showstoppers and which are not. Um, and if you've got a really high performer who's faking it and not causing any trouble, and you know that they go home at night and roll their eyes to their spouse about the things you believe, but is working, then there's not any reason to sort of, you know, throw a grenade on that. If it's someone who is a low performer and they say it's working and technically it's working, but it just causes stress for everyone and doesn't feel good, then, you know, my belief is we are only as happy at work as, as we are a fit at work and they might be happier somewhere else and it might be a better, um, a better bet to replace them. Um, but you, you generally don't change people's core values. Um, you can, but by and large, it doesn't happen. Um, so if someone's values are really not aligned, then they probably aren't long right. for the organization. Okay. That's very insightful. And I really think can help a lot of hospitals in the recruiting process, that information. Do you have any advice for veterinarians, uh, veterinary specialists? Um, a lot of residents are going to be finishing are going to be interviewing soon as to how to research a hospital's culture. Yeah. So the, so the first thing is the only thing you'll be able to research without walking in the door um, is their espoused culture. And in in an ideal world, people's espoused culture, what they have on their websites and what they put on their job posting matches their real culture, but we don't live in an ideal world. So there's only going to be, you know, a certain percentage of match there. Um, the other thing is the minute you walk in the door, you'll feel climate, but you might not feel culture. Um, there's some artifacts of culture that will be obvious, you know, um, are, are folks all wearing the same scrubs or are they allowed to just, you know, wear what they want? Um, does it look, does it look clean and, you know, like the kind of place that you would want to work? Um, those sorts of things will be obvious at first glance and I think are usually artifacts of culture. Um, but I would suggest that some of the things that tend to be more um, showstoppers or deal breakers once you're an employee um, are things you probably won't see in an interview process, but ought to be able to ask about. Um, so I would say as the candidate, um, it is always worth asking as many questions as you are asked. Um, if that takes your interviewer by surprise, so be it. But, um, the things that would be on my list, um, I probably have seven or eight, but I think that I would, I would ask about circumstances in which people's values and the unarticulated norms of the organization come into play. So um, what happens here when there's a problem we need to solve? And ask for an example of a problem that needed to be solved and listen for cues 
about whether that resonates with a way you would want to solve the problem. And again, it's, this is not about what the solution was. It's about who was asked for input and who made the final call and whether it was done on the fly or whether it was done really purposefully in sort of a segregated um, structural manner. Um, and, and whether it's, you know, whether you're describing an environment in which it's safe to disagree, um, that's sort of a, you know, a problem solving question. I would ask the same question about conflict. What happens when there's a conflict here? Um, for this one, it's not only interesting to see um, what example they choose. Um, it's interesting to see what kinds of conflicts they are describing relative to things like hierarchy. So um, if the example that they choose is a conflict between um, between vets or vet specialists versus between the vet and the vet tech, um, that's just interesting data. I'm, I'm not going to pretend I would know what that data means in your industry, but those sorts of examples mean different things, right? Um, and so it would be interesting to hear that. Um, what happens here when someone isn't performing? Um, there are a lot of organizations that, um, that have kindness as a core value, um, and kindness is amazing and it is absolutely appropriate to have in the workplace. And it is certainly appropriate to lend to our patients and their families. Um, but when kindness trumps meritocracy, that's an important thing to know about a culture. Um, and so you would want to ask when there's a performance issue, what do we do around here? Um, and, and see if the answer includes things like honesty and coaching and appropriate time to change behavior, or if it's, oh, wow, well, we just love people, so we put up with that. And one is not right or wrong, but some of us find one easier to live with than the other, right? Um, you might want to ask what happens here when someone leaves the practice. Um, in some organizations, when someone leaves, they're considered a traitor. Um, we don't refer business to them. We defame them. We don't have anything to do with them. In other organizations, when someone leaves, they're considered um, a future networking possibility. And we will you know, continue to do referrals with them. And we're excited for them. And we keep inviting them to the Christmas party. Again, there's not one there that's you know, value neutral, better or worse. But you want to work someplace that resonates with you. Um, what happens when a client complains or when a client has a meltdown, how is that handled and by whom is it handled? Um, what happens when an animal in distress arrives without an appointment, but the waiting room is full? Like, how do we triage? How do we prioritize? That will tell you a lot about an organization's values. Um, and things as simple as what's the turnover rate? How often do we lose people? Um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad place to work. It might mean that folks are um, hiring too quickly and they're not recruiting well, um, but it's in, the answer would be informative just the same. So those are the ones that come to my mind sort of okay. off the bat. And obviously it would be in the best interest of the person, uh, the interviewer to, to answer the questions um, or that is probably a red flag. Yeah, that's a tough one, Laura. I mean, I, I think all things being equal, it's a red flag, but there are some organizations, um, particularly small ones, in which people just haven't ever thought of those things before. And so if you find someone who seems evasive and unwilling to answer, that's different than if they go, wow, I never thought of that. I'm not sure. And that might mean that 
given given an hour to digest the question, they could come up with five good examples, right? Um, so I think you have to sort of use your intuitive sense of human dynamics to know whether somebody is kind of not wanting to tell you or whether they're just saying what they think the right answer would be in kind of a textbook. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a red flag if somebody's doing those two things. And do you suggest asking these questions at the end of the interview when you when a candidate thinks, gosh, I'd really love to join this hospital because I like what I like, what I've seen, and, and then answer it, you know, again, after the end of the workday? Or how would you handle that? You know, that's probably more a matter of personal preference than anything else. But my tendency would be to weave them into conversation because you're a little bit less likely to get a um, a well-constructed answer. You're more likely, you know, if you can just sort of conversationally say, hey, you know, that, gosh, I see that someone is new. That's awesome. What do you guys do when somebody leaves? Um, that's kind of just interesting to see when somebody answers off the cuff, how they answer that question. That, that would be my personal preference, but I, I don't know that it makes too much difference. As I said, there are a lot of um, veterinary residents who are going to be interviewing um, as they finish their residencies this summer and um, asking these questions will help them so much. And, and feeling that it's okay to ask them and that they're comfortable doing that is really important because a bad fit is not, you know, it's bad for both sides, for the hospital and for the employee. Um, so it's certainly. Yeah. In, in a service industry, and I think probably, you know, aside from really expensive medical equipment, um, the primary cost in an organization is its people. And it costs a whole lot more to make a bad hire than it does to wait a couple of more months to either get the right job or hire the right person. Um, it's just an incredibly expensive proposition to have somebody come aboard and invest in the training and, um, and knowledge transfer that they need to have um, and then find out, you know, three or six months or a year later that it's not a fit. Um, it's expensive for everyone. It's, it's demoralizing for the team. There are a lot of hidden costs in that experience. And I think that while we tend to think of an interview as the organization wanting to hire the person, um, an interview is going two ways all the time, particularly when you're at the level of a veterinary specialist or, you know, any kind of medical practitioner. Um, and I think it's, I think it's, it's uncommon in 2019 for the people doing the interviewing to not realize that. So I don't think candidates need to worry about offending. Um, you know, you don't want to create an inquisition, but um, I think it, it's, it would be sort of an expectation that it's a dialogue. I'll also tell you as someone who does a lot of interviews that the candidates who ask thoughtful questions are the ones who most impress me. Um, the candidates who come and just want questions asked of them, I, I sometimes worry whether they are doing their due diligence. Um, and most people would prefer to have a conversation. Um, so it, it tends to land well um, if you ask those things. That's excellent insight, Joey. That truly is um, for those who are, are going to be interviewing. I was going to just say as a final you know, yes. closing thought, it's important to remember that work is work, right? I mean, there's a reason we don't call work vacation. Um, not everything is going to be perfect anywhere all the time. But a culture that resonates personally with your values, a culture that um, 
has artifacts that work for you in terms of schedule or cleanliness or uniform or, you know, way we behave, a, a culture that um, feels like it's someplace you would fit um, will will often make or break the rest of it, you know? Um, and so it's, I think it's important for people to pay attention to it. And I think it's important for organizations, even if they can't afford a chief culture officer per se, to have someone whose job it is um, to educate themselves about culture. Uh, like they can call me and I'll be more than happy to coach them on it um, so that they can keep an eye on things. When our espoused culture is different than our true culture or when our processes and systems and structures are not aligned with our vision and mission and values, we create a circumstance in which people are confused And it's difficult for people to work well when they're confused. It's difficult for people to work well when they don't know if they fit. It's difficult for people to work well when they get mixed messages. And an effective organization has people working well. So whether your culture is, you know, ABC or one, two, three, to be clear about that and make sure that the organization is aligned around that makes it easier to get maximum efficiency and happiness out of your employees. And and that's really what this is all about. Um, I tell folks that culture is what happens in the white space. So you can look on a page of a book and see all of the writing. And we think it's the writing that we read. And of course it is. But if the white space is marred by coffee stains or um, is, is actually so, so dark that we can't see, then it doesn't really matter what's written in the text. We won't be able to make meaning of it. Um, so the white space, all of that stuff that happens kind of between the cells, if you will, um, is is the stuff that holds it together and allows it to work. And that's what culture is. This has been terrific. It's a learning curve for me, <laughs> for sure. And just has been terrific. I can't thank you enough, Joey. It's an exciting field because it's it's new for a lot of folks but yet it can have such a huge impact on, on an organization and and the employees, you know, experience. It is, it might be one of the single biggest levers you can push for the employee experience and for the client experience to be what you want it to be. Um, It's been a pleasure for me to talk about it. Um, I live it and breathe it, but it's always fun to, to share it and educate other people about it. So Thank you for having me, and I would be delighted to, to jump in if anybody's got pressing and specific questions at any time. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Joey. I'll be in touch. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to our podcast in the series, Is Veterinary Medicine Ready for a Chief Culture Officer? If you have any feedback or would like more information about our services, Or if you're considering a new position, please feel free to contact me at laura at vetcareerservices.com or directly on my cell, 804-833-0585. Stay tuned for the next episode.